like to thank Will for that scripture reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Really helps to set the stage along with that song he led. And I didn't ask him for that particular song, but it really sets the stage for this morning's sermon. And I just want to say before we begin that I hope each of you had the opportunity to get a bulletin. And if you didn't, please get one on the way out. The article in there is one of the more important ones, I think, that maybe I've ever put in a bulletin. It's something that um, goes along with this morning's lesson very well as well. So I hope you will get one. It should come as no surprise for the amount of years that I've been here and as many times as I've told you that Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire New Testament. Romans chapter 8 is an outstanding encouragement, and we could all use a little more encouragement, right? It's an outstanding encouragement to Christians everywhere to daily embrace and to daily be empowered by the victory that we've already been given. It's already ours in Christ Jesus. It's not something that, that we have to wait for. We have this daily victory, and that's the point that Paul is trying to get across. And this morning, I want to examine that text and, and squeeze out of it some of the incredible power that that text has for all of us, only from maybe a little bit different angle than we are used to. I want to encourage you this morning, because as the bulletin article says, I know that a lot of us are struggling with life, all kinds of different circumstances and situations. And the book of Romans is all about hope. Not a hope-so hope, but a no-so hope. The book of Romans is all about this incredible, unbelievable, irreversible hope that we have by faith in Christ Jesus no matter what life throws at us. I want us to look first this morning, if you would, with me in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. The book of Romans contains the word hope 17 times in 12 different verses. 17 times, 12 verses. We see the word hope twice where it first occurs in Romans 4, but in order to get the context, we're going to begin in verse 13. It says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations." In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, watch this now, contrary to hope, in hope believed. Abraham had no earthly reason to hope, and yet he did. He had this solid assurance, contrary to hope, in hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. God made Abraham a promise. And, and Abraham put his full hope in God. And, verse 19, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he's about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God. 
Now, you know, sometimes when we have our physical infirmities and some of those things that go on in our life, where, you know, we know God is there and we understand it intellectually, but, you know, sometimes we begin to waver a little bit and we begin to, to have this wavering of our hope. Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. Isn't that awesome? Is God able? God is able. No matter what we see, no matter what we think, God is able. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what Abraham did. Now, here's the beauty of this for us. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That, that promise was written for us too. This hope that Abraham had is a hope for us who believe in what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, who believe in the resurrection, who believe in God. We need to have that same kind of hope. That's why that was written. We would see the word hope occurs three more times in three verses in Romans 5. And look at the beauty of this passage. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says... Therefore, having been justified by faith, that is, we have faith. We've read what God said. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We've, we've read what God said, or we've heard what God said. We believed it, so we followed it. We've done it. We have faith. Through that faith, we have been justified. And having been justified by that faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins have separated us from God. But through our faith we have peace with him, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Are you here this morning to rejoice? We all have our struggles. We all have our crosses to bear. We all have problems in our lives. Very few of us can come in this morning and say, my life is absolutely 100% problem free and has been for the last three months. How many of you can honestly say that? It's about what I figured. Zero. But yet, we should be rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, look at this verse 4, verse 3. We also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. He said, even when you're going through a tough time, that you should cling to God. You should hang on to God. And that hope that you have and that knowledge that you have that, that God is all-powerful and that God has got this and that God knows, that should produce perseverance. And perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How many times when we get into a struggle, when the doctor says something we don't want to hear, when family says something we don't want to hear, when something comes along that we don't want to deal with, how many of us say, you know what, and I know some of us do, you know what, I'm going to hold on to God and God's going to bring me through this and I'm going to be better off on the other end of this. That's the point of that passage. That's what Paul's trying to get across to the first century congregation of our brethren that met in Rome. You know, I'm reminded here that just as the Apostle Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, if I may paraphrase, Peter in that passage says, 
The fire is there to refine us. James in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, if I may paraphrase that, says the problem is there to perfect us. In that way, if I may paraphrase the Apostle Paul, he's trying to inform us that the struggle is there to strengthen us. Because of this rock-solid hope that we have, because of who our rock is, that should be enough to carry us through any earthly circumstance, which was the point of the Scripture reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We just quickly note that that word hope occurs another six times in three different verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 20, 24, and 5. We would see that word hope once again in Romans 12, 11 and 12, where it says, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. Are we rejoicing in hope even when our crosses are heavy? When Jesus was on the cross, did he have hope? He did. Was his hope realized when he went through that and he arose from the grave to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Yes, he did. He had hope. And as we carry our crosses, we must have the same hope. Be fervent in spirit. Don't, don't give up serving. Don't give up being diligent in your service. Rejoice in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing in prayer. I'll tell you what. I don't know about you, but for me, sadly... I tend to pray more when I'm struggling than when everything's going good. I need to stop that. Not that I need to stop praying. <laughs> I need to pray and thank God as, as much when times are going well and take the time to do that as I do to pray when things aren't going so well and I need His help. How many times do we go to God in prayer? God, please do this and please do that and please do this and please do that and please do this and please do that please do this please do that and amen. How many times we go to God and say, God, thank you for having done this and that and something else, and we just continue to thank Him for what He has done. How much stuff would we have today if we only had what we thank God for doing for us yesterday? Finally, we see that word hope five times in four verses in Romans 15, and I want to point out just one of them in Romans 15 and verse 13. Romans 15 and verse 13, as Paul gets ready to wind down this letter, look what he says. Now may the God of hope fill you. Folks, when God fills you, He don't fill you halfway. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May you have so much hope you can't even hold on to it. That's Romans 15, 13. Now, <laughs> did the Apostle Paul know anything about hard times? The, the Apostle Paul knew more than a little bit about what it took to be filled with joy and peace due to abounding in and being filled overflowing with this death-defying hope in the middle of messes. He knew a little bit about that. Paul tells us back in Romans, a little earlier, beginning in chapter 7, he tells us there that when he struggled to do the right thing and he sometimes failed despite his best of efforts, he knew the God of all grace was there to love him, to support him, 
strengthen him, to forgive him, and that there was no condemnation for him or for any of those who are in Christ Jesus who struggled with sin and temptation. You ever struggle? Don't raise your hands. You ever struggle with sin and temptation? Paul knew that God was there to uphold him and love him and forgive him. Romans 7, verse 13 through chapter 8 and verse 4. Paul knew that whatever struggling and suffering, and, and we'll chronicle some of that in a few minutes, but he knew whatever struggling and suffering he was going through, that that was a terribly small price to pay in comparison to what was waiting for him. When you take all of your struggles and all of your heartaches and all of your tears and all of your trials and all of your temptations and, and you wrap it into this big, nasty, painful, awful, hurtful ball that is just this overwhelming. Think about your entire life and, and you can't in your mind envision all the struggles you've had. But if you could put them together in one big, awful, nasty, horrifying place. You know what Paul says about that? He says that... Pfft, that's nothing compared to what's waiting for you. Look in Romans 8. Look at verse 18. Look where he says that. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. Paul says, I love Romans 8. Now, he doesn't say that. I said that. But Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul also knew that when he was so weakened and beat up that he didn't even know what to pray. You ever been there? Life ever gotten so heavy? Things gotten so awful? Pain gotten so bad? Be it psychological, physical, whatever. You ever looked at anybody and said, I, I can't even pray. I, I don't even know what to pray. Apostle Paul knew that when he got to that point, when he was so weakened and burdened and beat up by the world that he didn't even know the words to pray, that his God was there to take care of that too. Look in Romans 8, verses 26 and 7. He says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't God awesome? Paul knew that even in his darkest hour, and he had a lot of dark hours, he knew that even in his darkest and most desperate hour, in his most dire need, that even then, when, when life was the worst, that it could be. Paul knew that God was capable of and could and would in the worst of circumstances bring something good out of that for the faithful who loved him. Look at Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know he doesn't say, boy, I'm guessing and I think I might be right here. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Isn't that a beautiful text? Let's face it. He knew what struggling was all about. Look what he concludes in Romans 8, beginning at verse 31 where he says this, 
What shall we say then to these things? What, what do we say to all these things I've talked to you about, he says, about the struggles and all of these things we've talked about up to this point? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God was willing to give his son for you, what makes you think he's going to hold out on you now? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. You see, Jesus' work didn't stop when he died on that cross for you and me. It didn't stop when he faced the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin that's ever been committed. His work didn't stop there. His work didn't stop when he was in the Hadean realm. Jesus is still working for you today. Hebrews 7, verse 25. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession. He always lives to make intercession for us. That's what he's doing, Romans 8, and verse 34. Verse 35. Knowing that he went to the cross for us, knowing what he did for us there, knowing what he's doing for us this morning as we sit here, or stand here, in May of 2018, knowing that he's interceding for us, knowing that his work continues on our behalf, and not just our, don't take this as a group, take it personal. Put your name in that spot. He's working for you this morning. Jesus is interceding for you. Knowing all that, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If, if our sins didn't do it, and all the messes we've made didn't do it, and all the things we've been through didn't do it, what's going to separate us from the love of God? If God took care of all that as beautifully as God took care of all of that, if He's taking care of us through everything else, what on earth can possibly come between us? He says nothing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? None of us have ever struggled from stress, have we? Or persecution? Or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or any of those things capable, as it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Let's face it. Let's be totally honest here. The Apostle Paul knew exactly what real tribulation was. He knew what real distress and persecution and famine and actual nakedness and peril and the sword were all about. The Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about being hunted like an animal. He knew a thing or two about being hunted like an animal, haunted by a killer's conscience, and accounted as a sheep for the slaughter. I don't have time to go over everything, but I want you to consider with me what he has gone through prior to writing what he does here in Romans 8, verses 35 and following. Prior to writing this, prior to putting the pen down here, I want you to consider some of the things that he has been through before he says, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or any of these other things separate us from God. Think about his life. It's commonly believed that he penned this epistle to the church in Rome during his third missionary journey and that he penned this epistle to the Roman church during his three-month stay in the Grecian city of Corinth, as is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. So, he's in Greece, he's in Corinth, and he's penning this letter to the Romans. 
during the events of Acts 20, verses 2 and 3. And even in Acts 20, verses 2 and 3, it tells you how the Jews are plotting against him even then. He's still struggling. They're still hunting him like an animal. But what about prior to his arrival there and his penning of Romans? What kind of first-hand, up-close and personable knowledge did the Apostle Paul possess regarding tribulation, persecution, peril, and all those other things? Let me give you a little list. We'll go back to about Acts 14, and you can follow along if you want and just check. During his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas were persecuted and run out of town. They were run out of Pisidian Antioch simply for preaching and teaching the biblical truth. That's Acts chapter 13. In Iconium, there was a bunch of unbelieving Jews who poisoned the minds of the townspeople against him to the point that the scripture says they put forward a quote-unquote violent attempt to torture and stone him to death. You know, if you have people that are so mad at you that they want to torture you and stone you to death, you've made some pretty good enemies. Paul did that. Scripture says it was a violent attempt. Acts 14 verses 1 through 5. As we move on to some of the other things he encountered and endured prior to writing Romans 8. In the city of Lystra he was stoned in Acts 14. In fact, he was stoned so thoroughly and so incredibly injured that his adversaries was convinced he was dead. And so they dragged what they believed to be his bloodied corpse after they have stoned him. And he's just a mass of bloody flesh and ripped open so much so they think he's dead. And so they drag his corpse out into the wilderness to rot. Did Paul know something about persecution? At the beginning of his second missionary journey, he had such a bad fight with a fellow Christian and co-worker in the kingdom that it caused them to part ways and as far as we know, to never work together again. Ever had a fight in the church? Paul did. He knew the heartache that could cause. He knew the rupture in relationships. That's in Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. As we move on, in the Macedonian city of Philippi, he and Silas were seized and they were dragged into the marketplace and they had their clothes ripped off of them and they were beaten with rods by a multitude of people. We're talking, we're talking literal. This is not a figure of speech. The masses, the mob, the crowd, the multitude was so mad at them that they tore their clothes off of them and beat them with rods. Can you imagine having a crowd of people? You know, you, you walk out here, you, you get down to high school to some event, and you have everybody just have a club want to beat you to death. That's what he went through. Later that night. After all that, they were imprisoned in the inner dungeon and placed in the stocks in Acts 16. Moving on. He was a victim of mob violence to his friends in the city of Thessalonica. And then he had to flee under cover of darkness to Berea. And when he preached the gospel there... 
people from the other town pursued him and got him to flee from there as well. Acts 17. How many towns you been run out of? Paul was run out of more than one. He goes to Athens in Acts 18. And he's grieved by their religious idolatry, much as we are today when, when people believe in all of these incredibly non-biblical things and concepts. And he preaches Christ there, and then he departs from Corinth, where we find him in Acts 18. And in that town he finds a Christian couple who've been kicked out of their home in Rome because they were Christians. We, we don't get that concept today, and we're going to talk about it more as we study the book of Revelation here on Sunday morning, but he meets Priscilla and Aquila who were kicked out of their home in Rome because they were Christians. Now chances are nobody's going to come into your home today and kick you out because you're Christian, but they had to flee town because of that. And Paul there encounters rejection and opposition and, and blasphemy for the truth he taught and he seized and dragged before the local authorities on trumped up charges. Acts chapter 18 verses 1 through 6. If we were to read Acts 19, we would see him again in Ephesus facing those same sorts of persecutions and injustices and rejection. While he's there in Ephesus, it's believed by many commentators it was the spring of 57 A.D. And that's where he wrote the letter to Corinthians, the first one we have a record of. And he sent it back to them. Keep that in mind. Spring of 57, 1 Corinthians. Now turn with me to Acts 20 and verse 1 and let's pick up the story. Acts 20 and verse 1. Think of all the struggles and the suffering, life and death that he's been through. Acts 20 and verse 1 says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. It was there in the Macedonian city of Philippi that it is believed that the Apostle Paul wrote what we commonly call 2 Corinthians in the fall of A.D. 57. You'll recall that if we look at this this way in Acts 20 and verse 1 when he's there in Philippi and he writes 2 Corinthians in the fall, you will recall that it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul gives that big long list of all of the things he's encountered. Chapters 11 and 12 of that epistle, Paul says that he's been in labors, stripes beyond measure. That means I've been whipped so many times I can't even remember. I can't count that high. Frequent imprisonments. It wasn't once or twice. This was a regular thing. Scourgings, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks. One of them caused him to spend a night and a day in the open sea, which I cannot even begin to get my mind around if I had to go through that personally. And he talks about all these various and different trials that, that he has been through. From all these different people and places and locations, everywhere he seemed to go, whether it was land or sea, city or country, in the church or out of the church, he lists in, in that Second Corinthian epistle that we have a record of, he lists all these terrible things that he went through from everybody, every place he went. It was in that passage that he chronicled the endless toil and tiredness, the long and sleepless nights being hungry and thirsty and having to endure that. We don't know what that's like in modern day America for most of us to go hungry and thirsty for days on end. If you had to do that, if you're kicked out of your home, you had to go without food, 
You had people beating you up every time you went in. Would your faith maybe begin to waver a little bit? Mine might. I'm human. I don't say that because I'm proud of it. I'm not. But you got, if you really think of it, as we sit here, you know, we got the fans on, we got the lights on, we got the cushioned pews. I mean, we got our, you know, our automobiles for tens of thousands of dollars to ride home in, and we got all that. Think about what he went through. Really put yourself in it. The fastings he had chosen to undergo, his going without the basic necessities of life, and his surpassing concern for all of the churches, as well as his own physical infirmity, which the Lord refused to move, that he talks about in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. All that stuff that Paul went through. And yet when he prayed for that thorn in the flesh to be removed, God loved him. And God showed him, and God told him, he said, Paul, my grace is all you need. Or, closer to what the text actually says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, I'm not going to remove that thorn from you. It keeps you humble and it keeps you what I need you to be. You just have, you understand you have my love and you have my grace, and that's all you need, Paul. Paul says, therefore I delight in persecutions. And he goes through this entire list. You see, the lesson that Paul learned, and he learned to embrace and live and lean upon from that point on, was this. No matter what I go through, as long as God goes through it with me, I am more than conqueror. It is after enduring every inch of everything we've talked about, when he finally arrives in the city of Corinth, or Greece, the, the, the region of Greece and the Grecian city of Corinth, as it's chronicled here in Acts 20, verses 2 and 3, it was from that place, after having endured all that we've chronicled and so much more, that Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, it is believed. Including Romans 8, verses 35 and 6. Which say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, just as we read? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, a sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Is that insurance? Is it an insurance ad on TV? I think it is. It says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Well, next time you see that, I want you to remember Romans 8, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about distress and persecution because he'd seen a thing or two when it came to distress and persecution. He had seen things and endured things that you and I cannot even get our minds around. And it is at that point, in his epistle to the church at Rome, that the Apostle Paul goes on to say something else so unbelievably, unbelievably incredible as to escape our minds. So, so unbelievably beautiful as to not be something we can even get our, our psyches and, and the practical reality of into our minds. But it is a very real world, very real beautiful, very real gift from God. And here it is. You ready? Look at verse 37. Yet, in all these things, 
And we often look at that short list in verse 35 and we say, okay, don't just look at verse 35. Look at Paul's life from, from Acts 14 all the way up to Acts 20. Look at his life as he wrote about his struggles in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12 in particular. Look at all of that and he says, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If God is walking through it with me, I am more than conqueror. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that awesome? I want you to understand a couple things about that phrase, more than conquerors. That phrase is only found once in the entire Bible. The Greek phrase. And it's right here. It is the Greek word, Nikeo, from which we get Nike, the sneaker brand. Nikeo means victory. And it is put, this Greek word for victory, nikeo, is put with the Greek word hooper, from which we get hyper. And that word means over or beyond or more than. We have more than the victory. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things here. The Greek word nikeo, Nike, victory, by itself occurs 28 times in the Bible. 28 times for victory. Not for more than conquerors, but for the conqueror, victory. Okay? It's a word that John uses repeatedly in the book of Revelation as we're covering Revelation in our Sunday morning class. It is that word in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches where it says, He who overcomes, that word overcomes is this word nikeo. He who has the victory or overcomes, nikeo. That's what that word is. He would use it a couple of more times. This word nikeo for victory, conquer. Listen to these two passages where he uses it in Revelation. Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11, he says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They nikeoed, they conquered. He uses it again in Revelation 17, 14, and 21, 7, where he says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will nikeo them. He'll overcome them. He'll conquer them. For he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And finally, as I said, Revelation 21, 7 says, He who overcomes, he who nikeos, he who conquers, shall inherit all things, and I'll be his God, and he will be my son. That word overcome, nikeo, victory, it's a powerful word. It's Christ overcoming and it's his saints overcoming and it's, it's this conquering power. But, but what I want for you to not miss this morning, if you don't get anything else out of this lesson, get this. Despite how powerful that word nikeo is, despite how much conquering John shows that that this word entails as he talks about overcoming and how the lamb overcame and we overcome and all that, this word nikeo by itself. In Romans 8.37, it's as if Paul needed to even up that level of power. It's as if the Apostle Paul here had to, to try to reach out and get our attention for our everyday lives. And so instead of just nikeo, which is incredibly powerful by itself, he puts the word hooper in front of it. We are super conquerors. You know, did you ever hear anybody on TV referred to as a superstar? We had somebody the other night on a commercial referred to as a superstar, and I said, where, where do you make the leap from star to superstar? Now, everybody's a superstar. It's like you just go from not being anything to being a superstar, but nobody's a star anymore. 
But what I want us to understand is, Paul is telling us that in our daily lives, we are super conquerors. We're not just conquerors, we're super conquerors. And we're that every day. I, I want for us to understand that Paul is trying to get you and I to understand we've got a daily victory every day over everything we encounter as long as we walk with God. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to grab that. He wants you to seize that. He wants you to live that. Because he knows the crosses are coming. He knows what persecution is. He knows what trials are. He knows what struggles are. He worries about the churches. He worries about things. He faces it everywhere he goes. And he says, but I want you to know that in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And if anybody knew that, Paul did. This word means to gain a surpassing victory. It means we are hyper-conquerors. The New American Standard Bible says we overwhelmingly conquer. I don't know, you know, it's basketball playoffs, and I don't know who your favorite team is. I don't know if you can care about basketball, but work with me for 20 seconds. There's four teams left. They're all pretty powerful teams, okay? Take your pick. This idea of being super conqueror or hyper conqueror is like whichever one of those four teams is left or which one ever emerges, emerges as the, the world champions, it's like having them take on a first grade boosters team. And only one kid from that team shows up. And he's got a broken leg in the flu. That's what super conqueror means. We are like that NBA team that overwhelmingly would conquer in that situation. And please notice that this phrase is not meant to be some far off promise for someday. But it's a right now promise. He says, in all these things. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Folks, tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. They're not going to be in heaven. He's not talking about conquering those things when we get there, because when we get there, we're going to have conquered them, because they ain't going to be there. If they were going to be there, it wouldn't be heaven. But he says, in all these things, we're super conquerors. Through him who loved us. Paul says in verse 38, For I'm persuaded. Folks, <laughs> If everything he'd been through, and he could be persuaded that he was more than conqueror in all those things, it really is something we need to grab onto. I am persuaded that neither death, and some of us may be facing that with health issues. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, anything that comes along in this life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. You know, some of us get all wound up about what the government's doing, not doing this, that one thing, another. Nor things present. He said there's nothing, and I want you to see things present. Underline that in your Bible. Whatever it is you're struggling with this morning, things present right now. Whatever that is, he said, I want you to understand nothing that you're going through right now. Neither things present right now, this morning nor future. Nothing to come down the road. Do you see that? Nothing present. Nothing future. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the very first verse of this chapter, he said, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You struggle, are you burdened, are you heart sick? He said there's no condemnation for those who sin and fall. If they're in Christ. And he goes through this beautiful list and he says, Nothing that is going on in your life today, nor will come down the road to you, as long as you hang on to God, as long as you are in Christ, nothing is going to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You haven't got to worry about Judgment Day if you're in Christ. Neither matters of life, death, governments, their officials, present problems, future concerns, health, wealth, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. This is because no matter where we go on this earth or what we go through on this earth, God still loved us so much He gave His Son for us. Not only did He love us so much He gave His Son for us, but if through His blood we have become His children, that puts us in Christ and we can't be separated from the love of God. Not only that, but Jesus is still working today to intercede for us. That's why this vaporous earthly life, which is but for a moment, James says, there's nothing here that can pull us away from the love of God. If we hang on to God, God's more than willing to hang on to us. Let's face it, after what He paid for us, He ain't going to let go easy. If there was anybody that ever understood what it meant to be more than conqueror, no matter what he went through, it was Paul. And if there was ever anybody who desperately needed to understand it, it is God's children who do not daily live it. God gave you the victory over whatever you're struggling with today. You got two options. You can dismiss it and be miserable, hopeless. Or you can take a hold of that gift and understand that God loves you and He's got you and you're walking with Him and nothing you go through is going to separate you from His love. Those are your two options. I want to choose the latter. Your choice is up to you. If you're here this morning... You're not a Christian. You've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We'd love to either study with you or make that happen. You'll have the opportunity to walk down the aisle in a moment and we can immerse you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Looking out, I see most of you that I, I know are already in Christ. But you know, once we're in Christ, sometimes we struggle. I want you to know before you leave here this morning, whatever it is you're going through, Jesus is going through it with you and He says, you win. You are more than conqueror. Are you going to embrace that or are you going to dismiss it? If you haven't been embracing it and you need the prayers of the church to realize it's stronger in your life, or if there's any other thing we can do to help you this morning, would you come to the front as we stand and sing?